0: John Arnold. Here's a startling fact. My cousin Gene doesn't have a belly button. When he was serving in the Navy in the 60s, I think it was, he'd had an operation and uh, as a result he lost his belly button. And so while I think he was still in the Navy, he came to visit us in our home in Tucson with all of my seven brothers and sisters. And Gene, who's maybe 10, 15 years older, somewhere in that range than, than I am, Gene offered to pay us a dollar if we could find his belly button. So we'd search through his hairy tummy looking for his belly button and not to be found. And so that meant Gene couldn't have a life of navel-gazing. He had to find something else to do with his life. And so he married Candy, he built a life, had children, had ups and downs, happiness and sorrows and he and his wife and his family hope someday to be in the kingdom of God because despite the fact that he doesn't have a belly button he believes his marriage points somewhere and points to the kingdom what's the significance of a belly button? well a belly button in Mabel is about your connection to your mom because that's how you were nurtured and fed your body contains within it a sign of your fundamental connectedness To your parents, their belly buttons, just likewise. And then the belly buttons of your grandparents, likewise. We are all connected to one another physically and spiritually. There's a story about if you're at a party and everybody was naked. How would you know who Adam is? Well, because Adam doesn't have a belly button. He didn't have a mom and dad. He was created by God. So why is all that important? It's because the symbolism of our body, the sign of our connectedness to our parents, is also the sign of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That somehow the relatedness of the Holy of the Most Holy Trinity is also found in the most basic uh, human relationships. And why is it then that some of you, at least an amazing amount of you, like Hallmark movies that are romantic? Because in all Hallmark movies, there's always the joy and her sorrows. There's uh, something wonderful happens, and there's always the threat of loss. But if it's a real Hallmark movie, it has a happy ending. Because every real Hallmark movie is really about the gospel. Because the vine bridegroom comes in the gospel today, John chapter two, to claim his bride, that's the church. And there's some ups and downs. There's some happiness and there's sorrow. And there's also the resurrection and the ascension. So God is telling us something. He's come looking for us as the divine bridegroom. So let's turn to the scriptures. And so let's turn from staring at our belly buttons and wondering what they mean to turning to the scriptures where God tells us about this divine love story that starts in the first chapter of Genesis where God makes man and woman in the image and likeness of God. God is a trinity. Man and woman and their openness to new life is also trinitarian in its form. Because what we understand about being a human being is that we're a microcosm. Think about what the word microcosm means. Cosmos, is the entire cosmic reality, galaxies, stars, planets, life, both visible and invisible. The cosmos is all of created reality. How is a human being a microcosm of the cosmos? It's because in created reality, there's material reality and there's spiritual reality. Pl- plants participate in material reality, animals participate in material reality. Angels participate in spiritual reality. The human person is the only creature and every thing I have just described is a creature. The human being is the only creature that participates both in material reality like vegetables and animals do and in spiritual reality like the angels do. That's why we are a microcosm Every individual contains within him and herself this whole cosmic order. So how does God become a divine bridegroom? Because God is complete spirit. The way that God fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament about being the divine bridegroom is God has to take on human reality that Jesus is both truly God and truly human being and truly, as a human, he takes on cosmic order. And so let's turn to the Old Testament because it's really the backdrop for the gospel stories today. So quick recap of the history of Israel. Remember, Israel gets this king, the second king, David. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. This story is told in First Kings. Under Rehoboam, the 12 tribes that are Israel, which were under the Davidic kingship, the the prophecy of the Messiah applies to King David. But that kingdom fell into two warring parts, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Surprisingly, they couldn't get along, just like almost every other community has trouble getting along. And so if you remember, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in the eighth century and Judah, which is the southern kingdom where we get the people, the Judeo, from, um, was conquered by the Babylonians a, a century or two later. And what presaged both conquest and the destruction of the kingdoms in the north and the south were the prophets. And so in the northern kingdom, there was a prophet, Hosea, in the eighth century. And here's what Hosea prophesized. He says, thus says the Lord, therefore behold, I will allure Israel and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. That's in Hosea chapter two. So a hundred years or more later, the other prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, who were all prophets in the Southern kingdom of Judah. They have the same prophecy about God coming to claim his people. And so this is from Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And again, that's idea of Israel being a bride in love with with the bridegroom, the Lord is present in the prophets in both the North and the South. And also amongst the prophets in the North and the South, despite the division in Israel, between Israel and in Judah, there was this remarkable consistency of the prophetic witness, because it was speaking with one voice about the relationship of God with his people. And so... If the relationship of God with his people is lover and beloved, husband and wife, bridegroom and and, and bride, well then sin, idolatry, is like spiritual adultery. So again from Hosea chapter 1 verses 2 to 31. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblum, and she conceived and bore him a son. So what Hosea does to make uh, clear to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel their their uh, their spiritual adultery, he marries a prostitute and has kids kids with her. But this is all going to play out in again the southern kingdom where Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel also talk about Israel is playing the harlot uh, to God, the faithful bridegroom. And so here's something from Jeremiah. Can a maiden forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Surely as a faithless wife leaves her husband, so have you been faithless to me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. That's in Jeremiah chapter 2. Like I say, it's the same prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel. But Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who talk about spousal love between God and Israel, who talk about Israel's idolatry idolatry and betrayal of God, talk about forgiveness and what that would look like. So let's get to that, because that's the backdrop to John's gospel. Hosea chapter 2. And there... She shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, Hosea. Here's something from Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord to Jerusalem, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I forgive you all that you have done, says the Lord God, or Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord, while I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah chapter 31 and so this consistent prophetic preaching about the fall of israel and judah is all about the relationship of god's people to god and it's the intimate relationship of of groom and bride and so think about that with with as the backdrop for john's gospel and why john the baptist calls jesus the divine bridegroom and why jesus plays the part of the divine bridegroom throughout the gospel of John. And so in chapter two, that's the gospel from today. It's the wedding of Cana. At a first century Jewish feast, the bridegroom had the duty to pay the barbell. He provided the wine. So if you remember the story, our blessed lady comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Jesus says, what's that to you and me, woman? And then Mary doesn't respond. She just turns to the, the helpers at the feast and say, Do whatever he tells you. And Jesus says, Fill up those six jars, those six stone jars with water. Now dip it out, take it to the steward, and yes, it turns out to be the wine. And so this outs Jesus as the divine bridegroom. Because for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, he's fulfilling the role of the bride groom at this wedding but that's not the end of it if you turn to chapter three of john's gospel which is a story about nicodemus and remember that marriage is fruitful the love of husband and wife is fruitful in the love of children and then how it is that the love of family grows like the love of the trinity uh man and woman and child uh it uh, because this is uh, people bringing god into the world so in chapter three nicodemus asked jesus about you know comes after dark and wants to know what jesus is about and so it's jesus says this is at the heart of of what i've come to do and he says in verse five of chapter three Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born from above. Why? Because the human person is a microcosm, the material and the spiritual. The sacraments are microcosms. They're material realities that have spiritual grace to them, the connection to God and so jesus becomes a man because the man jesus who is also uh the second person of the divine trinity now can marry because he too is a human but how does the jesus who brings god down to earth lift the human person back up to god that's the second part of the problem god can become the human being but how's the human being become god and so here in nicodemus how does Jesus prepare the bride so that the bride can participate, not just in material reality, but this this restored spiritual reality so that she might be a fit bride for this divine bridegroom and that she has to be born from above. And so flesh is a flesh, there's materiality, spirit is a spirit, there's the spiritual life, a description of the complete cosmic presence of the human person. But for human beings to be lifted up to God, God has to do something for us. So we have to be born from above. So let's turn the page. We're in chapter four of the Gospel of John, the book of signs. Jesus is on his way through Samaria. And in book four, he stops by Jacob's well. Why is this significant? Whenever you hear a well in Old Testament stories, a marriage is taking place. For instance, Moses met his wife, Zipporah at a well. She was watering the sheep. It was apparently the place to meet nice girls back in the day. But Jacob's well is the story of where Jacob meets Rachel, which is his most beloved wife. And Jacob is the father, remember, of 12 sons by Leah, Rachel, and then two concubines. And so it's kind of a mixed-up family. One dad, four mothers, it uh, sounds kind of like some modern families, but that this well is the symbol of where Jacob gives his heart to the wife that he truly loves, which is Rachel. And so when Jesus stops and the guys go on into town, try to find something to eat. It's a story of a marriage, and it's told in a symbol. So Jesus is there, and remember the woman comes to the well because she's going to get water just like Rachel came to the well and met Jacob. And Jesus tells her, if you remember, she, that she has five husbands, but Jesus doesn't uh, reveal how he knows it. He knows it because he's God. But the woman is shocked that he should know this much about her. Think of the image. Jesus and this woman who is broken Israel. Jacob's well is in the northern part, Israel, it's in Samaria. Not in Judah. This is very much about the broken nature of Israel, Israel and Judah, which is that historical backdrop I gave you. It's at Jacob's well, the place where Jacob meets the wife of his heart, and who will have the sons Joseph and Benjamin by. But it's also in this bigger image of Jacob as the father of the people of Israel. And this mother of Israel is a woman that's fallen into great sin because. This is the prophecies of Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel about God's spouse playing the harlot. And what's Jesus doing? He's reconciling himself to this fallen woman. And so you have to see that this story of the woman at the well in chapter 4 is really about what the divine bridegroom is doing, revealed in the gospel today as the bridegroom because he buys the wine talking in the next chapter about how it is that flesh gets lifted up to the spirit, born again in water, the sacrament of baptism. And so the next story in chapter four is at a well, which is all about water, which symbolizes a marriage. And here's where God meets this woman and she becomes a believer. And the prophecies of God reaching out and purifying his bride, Israel, Come to pass. How is that marriage consummated? It's consummated on the cross. In the first century, a Jewish groom would wear a crown. Jesus is crowned. In the first century, a Jewish bridegroom would wear a seamless garment. Jesus wears a seamless garment. It's a priestly garment. Remember, they gambled for it because they didn't want to split it up. What's being revealed is how the God who became man betrothed sinful humanity, starting with broken Israel, and then how it is that we, the Gentiles, are brought into this great and beautiful story of God wooing and winning and marrying his people. It's a hallmark story, isn't it? I mean, it's got some ups and downs in it. It's definitely got some grief in it, but because you're a Catholic, you know the story has a happy ending, and you have hope. So... Let's pull this all together and go back and talk for a minute about my cousin's Jean's missing belly button. And so poor Jane, he can't navel gaze anymore because navel gazing is how is about self-absorption, uh, looking for answers within you when the truth is the answer is from the other, from the divine bridegroom, from God. We find ourselves in God. The answers to who we are are not contained within between our two ears. And so God becomes publicly to us. He's revealed in Scripture, revealed in the traditions of the church, revealed in the teaching of the church, because it's a public proclamation to the fallen bride. What happens when you take love and you make it completely an interior experience? It's just about how you feel about your marriage. It's not the quality of how it is that you as a gift give yourself to your spouse and your spouse gives themselves back to you. We cannot be happy just retreating into ourselves and getting lost in our thoughts and navel-gazing because what our navel tells us is that we're connected to others. Our mom, our dads. What the wedding uh, sacrament tells us is that we're connected to our spouses and to our children. Human sexuality contains in it this vision of the Trinity, of the beauty of procreation and participating in God's creation. And so, what does human sexuality look like when it's just navel gazing? It's when you separate human sexuality from procreation. And then you get America, human sexuality becomes an industry, like a 60 billion dollar a year porn industry, and it just turns in on itself. It is frustrated, sinful creation that can never find fulfillment. Where does the human sexuality find its fulfillment in the loving, lifelong commitment that is marriage and the sacrament of marriage? You know, we have to recognize that human sexuality has been damaged, not just by American culture, but it's been damaged in every culture. And so think of the human person as a piece of paper. And what's to be written on that piece of paper is life. But when that piece of paper is crumpled up into a little ball, it's useless. Life doesn't get written out on it. No story is told. It isn't a script for a Hallmark movie. It's just useless. For us, it's that crippled human person that surrounds us and that is in fact us because we're connected to them. We're like them. That in the gospel, the divine bridegroom, you open up that piece of paper and yeah, it's got the wrinkles in it. It's got the creases in it. Everybody does. But once again, God's creative purpose can be written out a story of love with a happy ending and so why if marriage is a sacrament and a sign of the union of god with his people because that's why marriage is a sacrament what's the point of celibacy you know the one of the struggles of marriage is that it can turn in on itself couples can navel gaze they can just get concerned about what they're getting out of the union except uh, instead of how it is they make themselves a gift to each other and to their children, teaching their children how to make the gift of themselves um, and to fulfill their lives as human beings. The, it seems to me that one of the essential witnesses in our world is happy, committed celibates, especially priests and religious men and women. Why celibacy? Because celibacy forego procreation and fruitfulness in love in this world because it's pointing to the true fulfillment of what human love means in union with God, which is what we hope to experience when we die and we go to heaven. And so think of the celibate as the spiritual instinct that fires up Lent and preparation for God Remember, we're celibate because Jesus was a celibate. And he called some of his followers for the gift of celibacy, for the sake of the kingdom. And so in Lent, you give something up for the sake of something. And so you give up uh, meat on Fridays is a good example. Why? To help discipline your body. Because if you can't discipline yourself, how can you ever give yourself away? How can you ever be useful and good Uh, to another person. So celibacy is about not giving up something bad, because sex is definitely not bad. You can make it a bad and hurtful thing, but on its own, it's about this special firmness and love and openness to life. This is human sexuality uh, connected um, to the good of children. For the celibate, giving up that good gift for the sake of making present to all what the end point of all human love is. Connectedness with God. Uh, How do celibates do on that? I would say, like marriage, it's a mixed bag. uh, Because even the celibate deals with this crumpled humanity that I described. But that the sign of the celibate is something sound, something that God has given us and talked about In chapter 2 of the Gospel of John today. So, God bless my cousin Gene, his beautiful wife Candy. They've had joys and sorrows in marriage and they've been faithful to each other. But poor Gene, what he has for hope is the symbol of his marriage because he no longer has a belly button. No, you can can put up a bigger reward. You're not going to find it because it's not there. But it doesn't mean that his connection to his mom and dad, Gib and Marie, went away, or his connection to anybody else went away. What needs to happen in Gene's life and in all of our lives is that this connection needs to be purified through the sacraments, a life of virtue, reading the scriptures, being part of community, especially the domestic church in his home and his parish church. And hopefully with that level of support that Gene, like all of us, We'll find ourselves safely home with the Divine Bridegroom. So this has been one more episode of Oro Valley Catholic, the story of the Divine Bridegroom and the missing belly button. God bless you. You pray for priests, and I priests pray for all of you. Amen.